You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee and today we are joined by Kirsten Scrimshaw from Ally Workplace Law, who is here to talk about a really interesting case that's making its way to the Supreme Court of Canada, dealing with the intersection of employment law and driving law. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, So you had a chance to follow this case and what's going on. Why don't you explain sort of the details of it. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting case because it involves Uber. And of course, everyone's always interested in seeing what Uber's doing. And it's been fighting a lot of battles actually around the world on the issue that's now before the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, or will be before the Supreme Court of Canada. And Uh, and that is, are there drivers, employees or independent contractors? And they've been having some mixed results worldwide. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how the Supreme Court of Canada addresses this uh, going forward here. So what your take as an employment law expert, is a person who drives for Uber an employee or a contractor? Nice. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, it's, it's really un- unclear right now. I mean, I would say there's a lot of indicators under traditional tests for employees that would show that Uber drivers would have a lot of indicia of employees um, as those tests um, have, been, have been found. Um, the, the problem, though, with this case is we're not actually going to have that issue resolved. So although ultimately um, the Heller case is a class action where people are seeking um, $400 million oh um, for a class of, of Uber drivers who claim to be employees, this specific case and the issue that's going to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, is only looking at the fundamental issue of who gets to make that decision. They're right. not going to decide, are they employees? They're going to decide... Who decides whether they're employees? And and that battle is really between um, what Uber says that it should be uh, decided by arbitration in the Netherlands. Okay. The employees say it should be decided by the courts in Ontario. Now, now, why is it that Uber gets to say that the Netherlands would decide why somebody in Canada is an employee? How how does that arise? So it comes up, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with those. Uh, you you load up an app. Mm-hmm. You get a huge, long list of terms and conditions, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Uber, and at the end you say, I agree. Yeah. And so this is called a contract of adhesion, where there's basically a one-sided agreement that people enter into. Now, the contract of adhesion that is involved in this case is one where the Uber drivers load the app, they agree to be a driver for Uber, they tick, I agree, after looking at 14 pages of fine print. <laughs> And one of the things that Uber has put in there is an arbitration clause. And essentially what that means is that Uber says that if you have a dispute with us, instead of going to court, you need to file a commercial arbitration. In the Netherlands. In the Netherlands. (laughs) How is that feasible for a driver in Ontario? Well, that's that's one of the things that the Ontario Court of Appeal really um, came down on. Because at the end of the day, um, with an arbitration clause normally the courts would not be able to proceed and hear an action. Mm -hmm. One of the exceptions is if that arbitration clause is invalid, then the courts can hear the action. So in this case, there were two main issues that they were looking at. 
first of all, was it unconscionable? Mm-hmm. Which is coming back to your question about, well, how is that fair? Um, but the other one is a more technical one about whether or not it's um, contracting out of the Employment Standards Act. So that's the one that a lot of empl- employment lawyers are interested in. And where did uh, the drivers succeed at the Court of Appeal? So uh, what happened was um, at trial, the trial judge um, with the preliminary application from Uber decided that uh, the arbitration clause was valid okay. and would have dismissed the action. Okay. At the Court of Appeal, uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal said no. They allowed the appeal. They said, in fact, this arbitration provision is invalid because, first of all, it doesn't meet the requirements of the Employment Standards Act, and second of all, it's unconscionable. Oh, so they succeeded on both claims then? Yes. So there's two separate independent grounds that they succeeded on at the Court of Appeal. In the sort of employment context, are arbitration clauses like commonplace or is that something that's not ordinarily used? It really, yeah, it's becoming more common with, uh, with larger corporations, definitely. It's a lot more common in the United States than it is in Canada. Um, but one of the interesting things here, too, is that, um, of course, you know, Uber has always said that these aren't employees. Right. And at the application and at the Court of Appeal, the court had to proceed on the assumption that they are actually employees. So they're not making that decision yet. But for the purposes of the preliminary application to dismiss, they do the analysis on the basis that these are employees. And the reason they do that is because they have to look at whether or not the Employment Standards Act applies. Right. And one of the real issues for employment lawyers um, that comes up with arbitration clauses in particular as well, and, and this is going to be interesting going forward, is if you've got a provision in your contract that doesn't meet the minimums under the Employment Standards Act, then it it's invalid. So it's interesting because I haven't seen a case like this in BC um, where the ground under the Arbitration Act that someone is challenging that provision is the Employment Standards Act issue. Now, BC is yet to get uh, Uber or ride-sharing. It's supposed to be coming. We'll see. We did um, talk to Bowen Ma um, on the podcast a little while ago about the ride-sharing report that she she co-chaired. But um, if Uber were to set up in British Columbia... What advice would you have for people who are wanting to drive for them? Wow. I mean, right now, there's really not a lot they can do. I mean, they are subject right now to whatever the the terms and conditions are to that contract that they are obliged to tick the box of on the app. Um, And to be honest, I haven't read the whole 14 pages. So, (laughs) so, you know, in terms of saying what advice would I give right now, my advice is probably read it, (laughs) read it. Um, because I haven't, but, but the other point I think is that, um, it is certainly looking better for, for, you know, the people who are stuck in the gig economy as it is now. Um, things are looking better that, um, it's less likely that they'll be stuck with some of these really onerous arbitration provisions. Um, it's much more likely that they'll have access to some of the basic provisions um, and, and procedures that were designed to make it easier for employees to seek redress when there's an issue. And, and in particular, the, what, what the issue was in the Ontario Court of Appeal here is that if they are employees, then they can go to the Employment Standards Branch, make a complaint, mm-hmm. there's an investigation, right? It doesn't cost them any money to do that. Under this arbitration provision, the, the court found that the upfront fees just to bring 
um, a complaint against Uber would have been about $14,500 US. Which nobody who's driving for Uber can really afford to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the plaintiff, Mr. Heller, I think the evidence was that he was working 40 to 50 hours a week for Uber and earning around $25,000 a year. So, I mean, That's it's, about, it's about it. half his, you know, $400 to $500 a week. I mean, it's, it's basically six months of his income just to start. Wow. Just to start the action. Now, is, I, I don't know if you'd know the answer to this, but is the reason that Uber picked the Netherlands as their place of arbitration in their contract because it's one of the places that's decided the drivers are not employees? Uh, no, I don't think that's related. I don't think there's any decisions that I'm aware of about the status of employees okay. in the Netherlands. It's it's more just that it's a it's a hub for international commercial arbitration. So, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> as, as I didn't I know. know. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I guess uh, I guess different. I, again, I don't know the corporate structure of Uber, but it's parts of it certainly have some ties to the Netherlands. Okay. Presumably, well, that makes that's sense. convenient for them. The findings of the court of appeal were: it's convenient for Uber. Well, Basically. but if you're if you're a corporation that's running, you know, multinational um, and operating in dozens of countries throughout the world, isn't it convenient for you to do your litigation anywhere where your operations take place? Um, there's yeah, there's different ways of looking at it. I know. I mean, certainly from dealing with corporations who have multiple jurisdictions that they're dealing with, it it is a headache for mm -hmm. a multinational corporation to have to look at the separate individual provinces, jurisdictions, states, um, and, and especially where those minimum standards are different from one to the other. Even within Canada, um, when you have a, a corporation that's got um, locations in multiple provinces, um, there's a lot of employers accidentally trip up because the standards are different from one province to the other. So I can only imagine on the international front, it's certainly much easier for any corporation to try and push everyone to the same jurisdiction and the same laws and the same rules. Now, assuming the um, Uber finally does get approved here and people who are driving for Uber are employees, what parts of the Employment Standards Act would apply to them that would be the most beneficial that people might want to know about? Yeah, the um, the ones I think that are really potentially making a difference um, as how Uber operates and how employees are paid are going to be things like the minimum um, pay, right? basically, um, which just went up actually on, on June 1st here. Um, you know, minimum wage is, is a big issue because um, being paid on a sort of per drive basis um, means that you don't necessarily end up with a calculation where the person would meet the minimum um, employment standards wages. Um, hours of work requirements for statutory leave, holiday pay, um, you know, all those other basic basic requirements right now aren't, aren't being provided to Uber drivers. Does the gig economy as a whole pose problems, though, when it comes to issues like, for on, on the employer side, dealing with, you know, making sure people aren't just taking advantage of working as much overtime as possible and costing the employee or the employer more money? I'm not sure I... Okay. Like, sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if you're able to log into an app and take as much work as you can possibly handle on the app right. and the Employment Standards Act applies and you have to be paid if you're working 70 hours a week, you have right, to be right. paid according to overtime. Yeah. How are employers supposed to police that in a gig economy situation? Yeah, no, that's that's definitely an issue. And um, for those employees who are dealing with employees with overtime, I'm I'm 
repeatedly making sure they have contracts where they do put the onus on the employee to say you are not permitted to work overtime. Right. Like you, you, you may not do any overtime unless you first get authorization in writing from a supervisor. But obviously, I mean, that's, that's really going to change the whole Uber approach, right? I mean, it, it would undermine their whole model of, of and that's, I think that's their, their view. It's like, this is entirely entirely independent like all of our drivers are entirely independent they make these decisions right so right and if they start to include language like that in their contract then it looks more like an employer employee relationship and the courts are more likely to side with the employees yeah i mean if there is a finding in in canada that uber drivers are employees i mean i imagine uber would have to revamp a lot of the terms and conditions in their driver agreements um first of all to ensure they're not um you know, missing the the minimums, but also to give them more control so they can prevent, um, you know, the kind of situation you, you're talking about where employees just go and work a lot of overtime and end up uh, costing the employer a lot more money. Would it be possible for there to be different findings in different provinces about whether or not there's an employer-employee relationship, or is that law consistent across the country? Uh, I mean, the test from one province to the other is is generally fairly similar. I mean, there's no fundamental differences in the test for an employee versus independent contractor. Um, that said, I mean, there's obviously situations where you, it's it's so fact dependent mm-hmm. that there are different lines of cases in different provinces and, and federally as well, different jurisdictions um, where, yeah, someone on one side of the line might be employee and in another province found to be an independent contractor. And in fact, some of those cases where the hardest line to be drawn um, is uh, in relation to taxi drivers. So, you know, it's again, it's not it's not super clear if you if you look at the similarities in terms of how taxi drivers are paid and how they work and their hours and Uber drivers. Um, there's certainly a lot of overlap there. And um, most of those decisions come from tax decisions. But there's okay. there's cases that go both ways with taxi drivers. So I, really? I can't say that it's. Um, so the law on taxi clear. drivers isn't even settled. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this does not bode well for clarity in the law when it comes to Uber. Yeah. Now, yeah. In British Columbia, part of what they're proposing for when we get ride uh, ride sharing apps is that we're going to have minimum licensing requirements, um, vehicle requirements, and um, that people have to participate in certain training. Is the imposition by the government of those requirements more or less likely to lead to a finding that there's an employer-employee relationship, or is that really a neutral factor? Um, when it's coming in from, uh, you know, it's not it's not controlled by the employer, but it's controlled by the government and government regulation, it's probably a more neutral um, uh, issue in terms of whether or not that, that looks like an employment relationship versus an independent contractor relationship. One of the main elements of the test of employee is control. Right. So, you know, I think it's more of an issue of the more that Uber or whoever is, you know, any rideshare company, the more that the rideshare company brings in requirements on drivers in order to comply with the regulation, that starts looking more like an employment relationship because they're keeping more control over the how and the when and the and the why the, the drivers are performing those duties. Right. And it's expected that in British Columbia, because we have rules about how many hours people can drive for commercial purposes, Uber is going to have to police that, which would then, I guess, make it more of an employer-employee relationship? Exactly. The more the, um, the company steps in to ensure compliance with regulations, 
the more it looks like they are trying to keep control over the work and, and that moves more towards that employee relationship. Interesting. So it may be that our delay in British Columbia bringing this around might ultimately better benefit drivers, even though right now people who want to be drivers are complaining that the requirements are onerous. It, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, too, I mean, the fact that BC is behind everyone else, to some extent, also just sort of gives government a little bit more space to see what is happening Yes. with the decisions on employee versus contractor as well. So, you know, we've got things out of England looking like it's more employee. There's a couple of states in the United States where they've found, no, it's more likely to be a contractor. So, I mean, I guess some of the, if you want to see a bright side in the delay in getting Uber in, in Vancouver, perhaps it's that, um, you know, for the government, it's it's a little easier to wait and see what the heck is going to happen with some of the decisions on whether they're employees or independent contractors. So now, assuming this case at the Supreme Court of Canada um, goes the way of the drivers and they have their disputes determined by the laws of, of Ontario and the Employment yeah. Standards Act, um, does that then ultimately implicitly resolve the question of whether or not they're employees or does that still need to be determined? Yeah, it'll still need to be determined. So even if they're successful, so they've been successful so far, and assuming that Supreme Court of Canada upholds the decision of the Court of Appeal, I mean, the outcome of that is it will go ahead, and it's not even certified as a class action yet. Wow. So it means it'll go ahead to the next stage in the proceedings in Ontario. They'll seek certification for the $400 million claim for the group of employee employees, claimed employees, alleged employees. Um, and then from there, they then have to prove their case um, to the extent that they're claiming minimum wage, various other statutory um, entitlements and so on. So um, how long could all of this take? Oh, it's going to be years. Years. There's okay. no doubt it's going to be years. Yes. So we'll have we'll hopefully have Uber in British Columbia before we know whether Uber drivers are employees. Yes, and presumably, I mean, Uber's going to continue to take the position that the drivers are independent contractors and they're going to continue to put forward their, you know, multi-page, tick-the-box, I agree, app agreements. So, um, you know, going forward until we see, you know, a decision on this, um, you know, there's no doubt that they will continue to take the position. Everyone's a contractor and, and anyone who signs up needs to be aware of that. Is there something that employers or, or people who don't want to be employers who are thinking of creating like an app-based service that would require drivers or delivery people or, or agents to, to do the work for them? Is there something that they could do to protect themselves from claims that they're entering into employment relationships? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is they have to look at what that relationship is like. I mean, it's unfortunately for employers or you know, companies that don't want to be employers, um, what they say in the agreement in terms of we agree that everyone is an independent contractor and not an employee, uh, you know, a clause like that isn't isn't going yeah. <laughs> to change the mind of a court. The court's going to look at the substance of the relationship and they're going to look at um, they're going to look at control. They're going to look at you know ownership of tools. Who's got the risk of loss and, and the chance of profit, um, and you know all of those all of those fundamental um, building blocks of the relationship. Is it more like a control relationship where someone is telling someone what to do and when, or is it more in the relationship of a, an arm's length commercial relationship where the parties are agreeing that they'll do their own independent work and there's just an exchange of money. Right. 
Okay. So essentially the companies would need to consider how much control they're exercising rather than assigning tasks, for example, or assigning routes to drivers, offering those for acceptance? Yeah, and that's, I think, one of, one of Uber's main arguments in, in, a lot of these, in a lot of these cases is, look, we're not telling anybody what to do. Mm-hmm. We simply have a format where, you know, customers can look for someone who might be available. It's totally up to the driver to decide when and where and how they work, right? That's the, probably one of the stronger arguments in terms of the, the argument that they, you know, we, we don't have control over what the drivers do. That said, I mean, they still have some pretty, you know, specific terms as to how they expect them to act, um, right. you know. Uh, terms of service standards of service and when you start to get into things like you know um, standards um, and and that kind of requirement like how the work is done right like the rating system the rating system you can make specific comments on why you gave a bad rating cleanliness of the car conversation appropriate music temperature right and well and again uber would argue well that's just the customers that's the relationship between the driver and the customer. That's nothing to do with us. But to the extent that Uber is trying to protect their image and their brand, mm-hmm. and so they are directing the um, drivers to comply with certain standards. They're like, the ones that are assuming the risk, and they're the ones yeah. that have the potential for profit. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's very informative. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, in terms of the Supreme Court of Canada and what they're going to do, I mean, we'll see which issues they decide to talk about. I mean, yes. we, we never know what the Supreme Court of Canada wants to do. You do not know. They have something in mind. <laughs> they, you know, they, they may look at, at these two issues that the Ontario Court of Appeal looked at, or they may come up with something completely different. But, I mean, I think in terms of what employment lawyers are looking at, we're really looking to see um, whether this uh, provision that if it doesn't comply with the Employment Standards Act, then the arbitration provision is invalid, whether that goes ahead, because that's that would invalidate a lot of arbitration clauses in employment contracts. Okay. Um, and then the other one is, is it's going to be interesting, is it, 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 it is giving a door if the Supreme Court of Canada wants to talk about sort of contracts of adhesion a bit more broadly. So, you know, any of those sort of click you agree, multi-page um, contracts that are so prevalent now, um, certainly we could get some, some guidance on that from the Supreme Court of Canada. And I think that's that's probably the part that's more interesting to people who aren't just employment interest, uh, employment lawyers. Wow. Well, thank you for taking time out of your day to join me to talk about this on the podcast. How can people find you if they are looking for an employment lawyer? Oh, well, I mean, the best way is to uh, look at my website, which is ally, A-L-L-Y, workplacelaw.com. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, again for joining us. And uh, if anyone has any employment-related issues or needs any employment help, allyworkplacelaw.com. Yeah, thanks. So on the second half of the show, I am joined once again by Paul Doroshenko. Hello, Paul. Hello. How are you doing? I am all right. Thanks for running the soundboard while I do this from afar. Yeah, well, you're lucky. You're doing it at home and I'm here working in the office. Yeah, working well, for a living, you know, taking what I'm given. Taking what I'm given because I'm while, for a living. Every once in a while, I deserve a, a night at home. Well, you enjoy it. I'm going to by I, recording the podcast. I, I work many evenings in the office. Anyway, anyway I what do you What do you want to talk, talk about? What do you want to talk about, Kyla? Well, I wanted to talk to you about this dangerous driving decision that came out from the Court of Appeal basically late last week. Ah, oh, the appeal and the uh, and the death on death on um, 
Oak Street case. It was Oak Street, yeah. right? Like Oak and 49th or Oak and 41st or something like that? Oak and 41st. Yeah. So what happened in that case was the driver was uh, speeding, trying to beat a light turning red, went through an intersection on a yellow light at about 140 kilometers per hour and um, uh, killed a doctor. Wasn't it 119 at the time of the entering the intersection or at the time of the collision or something? Still fast. It was 119, fast. I think, as he started braking. And then, um, but it was 140 before he entered the intersection. The uh, When I looked at the video, I didn't think that it was going that fast. I, I still don't, no. I don't buy that speed estimate, but. No, and that's the thing, right? Like, I watched the video when it came out, um, and the judge had said in his reasons, and this is a very, very experienced um, provincial court judge presided probably in the course of his career over hundreds of, of dangerous driving trials. And he looked at the video and concluded it wasn't really that much different from anything else he'd seen. Well, I mean, driving in Vancouver, and I've been driving in Vancouver for 20 years, it's my 20 year anniversary of being in Vancouver. Um, Happy I'm always, anniversary. thanks. The, um, uh, you know, it's caused me to think about things. Uh, ponder my past. Anyway, um, I'm always, I've, I've been surprised for a long time at the speed that vehicles have been traveling, but I actually think it's improved a little bit lately. Like it doesn't seem to be as bad as it was five years ago. Am I wrong? But um, I, I mean, I guess my point is that when he was saying that like, this is not, this is not greatly inconsistent with the way people drive in this city, especially on Oak street, which is like people treat like a highway going through the city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe I, I think maybe it's improved. I mean, I think I used to be passed by people going over a hundred kilometers an hour regularly on Oak street. Yeah, I think it has improved. I don't know if I'm going, I'm going to sound like an idiot here, but it also seems to be improving with the decline in the number of luxury cars that I've seen on the roads lately. Like, yeah. I mean, there's always the Mercedes and the, the BMWs and, you know, the, the uh, I'll call them mid-range luxury cars, the ones that it seems like everybody here has. But, you know, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, the Audi R8s, they're not, they're not out there. You don't think there's as many on the road? You think they're sitting no. parked in garages of, of foreign home buyers uh, wait, waiting to be driven? Or what? You, well, where, where are they, Maybe though? Where are they? The money launderers are gone. They're not driving their high-end cars. I don't know what it is. Huh. Yeah, but there's fewer know. of them. That or I'm desensitized to them, and I don't even notice them anymore. I think you're desensitized to it. I think there's still the same number out on the road. Maybe some have been destroyed, but I think there's still a lot of them in Vancouver. But this, uh, the car in this case was like a Mercedes or a... Um, it was an Audi. An Audi, yeah. There was another bad accident on Oak Street uh, about a week ago, opposite direction, um, Yeah. close by the same intersection, and they had to shut Oak Street down. And, um, it was a Mercedes, uh, SUV collided with a Honda Civic or something like that. And the people in the Honda did fine. And the people in the Mercedes, the person in the Mercedes was, uh, taken to a hospital in bad condition. It was reported all over the place. And, and, uh, I was driving down Oak street just after it reopened and I was taking close note to the, sp- at the speed of the vehicles driving. Uh, and I, you know, I was driving probably at 60 kilometers an hour in a 50 zone. Maybe not. I mean, I, my speedometer always seems to, uh, say that I'm driving faster than I am, but I was passed by vehicles going fast, like really fast. And a guy came up behind me in a Bentley, uh, at probably like 
30 kilometers an hour faster than I was driving, maybe more, maybe 50 kilometers an hour, because he was coming up to me just as though I was standing still. Uh, and that seems to be fairly common. And I, you know, I, I wonder what the evidence was in front of the judge. Um, the, uh, I'm, I'm curious about how he came to the conclusion that that was not far off the mark for standard driving on Oak Street. Uh, it was widely criticized when it came out. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's a very experienced judge who knows exactly what he's talking about when it comes to dangerous driving. So I guess that, but now I that, that fellow, I, go ahead. I, well, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I, you know, we have to be conscious of the amount of time this, this podcast lasts. And there was something specific about the Court of Appeal judgment that I wanted to talk to you about. Which was, uh, it's not reported yet. It's not reported, but there's one line that's been quoted in the news stories from the reporters who attended the hearing, because this was a decision that was given off the bench. Hmm. Um, and that line is, that speed itself was so dangerous, it should be criminal. Interesting. Right? Interesting, because, because there's the, a whole series of cases where people are speeding, and it's just speeding. I mean, it's not dangerous under the circumstances. Yeah, the case law on dangerous driving and speed has consistently said speed and. So you have speed and the presence of alcohol in your body, dangerous driving. You know, speed and being really young and inexperienced, like a 16, 17, 18-year-old driver, dangerous driving. Um, speed and fatigue or, or speed and taking speed, <laughs> you know, speed and something. But this was just speed. So it was very surprising to me that the Court of Appeal was willing to sort of reason that way when to me that represents, to be punny here, a marked departure from the state of the law. Yeah, I'm concerned about that. I mean, I'm concerned about that for my ability to defend my clients in the future. I'm concerned that the police are just going to start charging people with dangerous driving in circumstances well, yeah. where it's just a speeding, and um, then what's but the but again, like would they would they only have charged it here because of the accident, right? I think we talked about this before. A doctor died with a very vocal family. No, just because there was an accident and a death, it didn't have to be a vocal family. I mean, it's tragic no matter who dies. It's I guess more tragic in the sense that we've got somebody who is contributing so much to our society, a doctor, but the. Yeah. Um, it, you know, had he just been pulled over by a police officer out there with a, a laser gun um, or, a, you know, who paced the driver, he, he wouldn't have been charged with dangerous driving, right? Well, and this is the thing, too. Like, if you start to say at that speed, the driving is so dangerous that it's inherently criminal, then that says that, okay, if you're going 90 over the speed limit, that's dangerous driving. You're starting to get into this really dangerous territory where you're setting an arbitrary number as a speed in excess of the speed limit that constitutes dangerous driving. And that completely eliminates the mens rea component that's necessary for the offense. Yeah. It essentially reduces dangerous driving to a strict liability offense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's problematic. I don't like it. I don't like yeah. it one bit. Speeding is speeding. Dangerous driving to me is something else. But I, you know, I had trouble with this one. I agree as well. Especially like the finding a fact on the speed. Like as you and I say, we both looked at it and looked at the speed. And I spent a lot of time thinking about speed estimation. And so do you. 
uh, and I do estimation of vehicles and we've, you know, got radar and laser guns and we've compared our estimates against vehicles traveling and we're pretty good at estimating speeds, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I may be on the decline because there is a level where that happens to you at a certain age, but, um, regardless. You're on the age related decline. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, when I looked at it, I didn't, I would not have concluded that those speeds were accurate. Um, I know that the the devices that monitor speed in vehicles and and records it and that can be downloaded from the Bosch vehicle data system uh, can be um, not as reliable as as may be displayed because I found problems in it in cases that we oh, yeah. dealt with. But you've seen ones where it's like zero and then it's thirty and then it's zero again. Yeah, well, how is that possible? Yeah, there was a, they are 100% throttle, 99% throttle, 99% throttle, then zero throttle, then 99% throttle, then zero throttle, all in like a millisecond. So, I mean, it's not always, they're not always reliable, but the point is that, that the trial judge made the finding of fact in the end mm-hmm. uh, and picked that speed, the 119 kilometers an hour or whatever it was when the collision happened. And I was a little bit surprised at that, you know, that, that, um, that he made that finding of fact and then acquitted the guy because, also, I, you know, for the same reasons that, that the court of appeal concluded that it was dangerous driving, you know, I'm looking at it saying 119 kilometers an hour, kind of on a 50 kilometer an hour street in a busy major city, um, you know, where there's people going to be turning through intersections and there's absolutely no way you could stop in time when the light changes traveling at that speed. Uh, well, maybe also, it is per se, you know. From the standard of review on an appellate level, right, you have, this is a crown appeal, and there's, you know, a beneficial finding of fact for the crown made at trial. Um, Because of certain rules about appeals, crown has a lot of difficulty uh, making appeals when it comes to findings of fact, and, and is in some circumstances precluded from appealing just from a finding of fact. Um, whereas, of course, an accused person can. But there was no appeal by the accused because he was acquitted. So no challenge can be brought to those findings of fact if perhaps there was a basis to challenge it. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I didn't follow that. No, I, no. I, I more or less followed it. But, the, I mean, I, I, I don't see, I mean, regardless, the findings of fact are made. Um, the court of appeal is dealing with those findings of fact. The court of appeal took those findings of fact and came to the conclusion that uh, on those findings of fact, this is like basically per se dangerous. Yeah. So very interesting. I, I see huge implications for the state of the law in relation to dangerous driving and huge implications for our clients moving forward. Yeah. I'm uh, I, I find that it's one of those cases where, I feel frustrated by the process when the trial judge made the conclusion, um, the trial judge hearing all of the evidence, the trial judge comes to the conclusion and then, you know, goes to the court of appeal and, and judges at the court of appeal looking at the transcript and the, uh, um, you know, can't, don't reject the findings of fact and then overrule the trial judge's finding. I, I find that problematic in the um, sense that uh, you know, it, 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 it makes our justice system look pretty arbitrary. Anywho, let's move on. What's next? Well, well, also another court of appeal judgment worth talking about. This is like court of appeal week on the podcast. Well, if you're, Um, if you're, if you're acquitted, you know, good chance you'll be convicted at the court of appeal. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, this is another example of, of things moving backwards for people at the Court of Appeal who got good results uh, at the, the lower court level. Um, so a couple of months ago, you and I talked about Brandon's uh, successful decision in notice of intent cases involving um, Class 7 drivers. Uh, yes. Their ends. This is the, um, okay, so the superintendent of motor vehicles, uh, when a Class 7 driver gets a ticket, is pretty much waiting at that moment for the axe to drop. Because if you get a ticket as a Class 7 driver and you're convicted of it in British Columbia, so that's like a new driver or an L driver, the superintendent of motor vehicles then sends you a notice of intent letter telling you that they're going to prohibit you from driving typically three months on your first ticket. And probably not with like the smallest like disobey traffic control device or something like that, but with a cell phone or speeding or a red light ticket, that... Uh, is coming your way, even if you've only ever had one, which is a problem in my view. In mine too, but not in the Court of Appeals. So they overturned the decision, finding that it was a problem, um, on the basis of the fact that it was wrong for the judge to import into the superintendent's powers of prohibiting drivers on the basis of unsatisfactory driving records a requirement that uh, the person be considered to be a dangerous driver. Well, I mean, I don't think they have to establish that the person has to be a dangerous driver, but I think the issue there... Like a danger to the public safety? Well, yeah, I think the issue there was establishing that the that there was a pattern of behavior that would that would lead to the conclusion that there was an issue of public safety involved, because that's what the superintendent always says in their in their letters to people, that they're making this decision on the basis of the fact that there's a risk to public safety by the person posed, uh, posed by the person as a driver as a result of the fact that they got one speeding ticket or whatever, um, and, that, uh, and that this is the reason that they're being prohibited from driving. Yeah, but the problem is here, the Court of Appeal even went further and said, it's totally cool to prohibit somebody on the basis of their very first you know, traffic offense because if they're an inexperienced driver, they need that extra stern, you know, snapshot to send home the message that they should never do it again. And if you read the Court of Appeals judgment, it actually opens the door to the superintendent prohibiting every Class 7 driver for any ticket, any well, single ticket. And that will, that will come next. And yeah, you have to think that, like, those people who judges on the Court of Appeal, they, they, they must be so far separated from the life of the class seven driver i mean you know oh, they, yeah. they, they they don't have to drive for a living none of them have their ends. they're not none of them have their ends they don't have to drive for a living they, you know, they, they they might be you know there's lots of people who are driving in this province with their end and they've been driving for five years with a perfect driving record i mean it's um yeah that's uh that seems like a um uh disconnect from the society of the court and you know, it may, may be perceived by people on on the basis of that decision. Yeah, and like the idea that, that that's not going to happen is also just really far removed from reality because... No, we know it'll happen. I mean, it already happens, well, right? So yeah, is this going to be, is this gonna be that, that much worse? Cell phones. Now they're going to do it for a regular speeding ticket or a, a stop sign ticket. Um, and, you know, literally everybody who has an end is going to lose their license because it's more money. In, and you know, here I am sounding like I'm saying it's a cash grab again, but it's a cash grab. Um, you know, if you send them a letter and they want to dispute it, they pay a hundred dollar review fee. 
there's a hundred dollars. Then they get their prohibition reduced because it's not going to be revoked. Um, because they could rely on this court of appeal judgment that says you don't have to revoke it, reducing it is fine. So then they end up with, you know. So they get it reduced from three months to a month or something like that. And then they've got to pay the license reinstatement fee. 250 bucks. Yeah. And the short-term license fee, because they're not getting a $35 or something. 31 bucks. Yeah. So that's $381 out of every single one of those drivers. Ching, ching. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's going to create more cynicism, I suppose. Uh, yeah. It is uh, encouragement for the end drivers, though, to um, get rid of their ends. Get, <laughs> and, get and rid of your ends. Dispute tickets. tickets. Um, it may be an encouragement for them to drive better, uh, but I, you know, I, I just feels like there's no forgiveness for the people who need some forgiveness. I mean, when you first start driving, I'm sorry, you make some mistakes. Um, yeah. You know, that's because you're new to driving. It's not an issue of like that you're you're being uh, uh, careless or that you're setting out on a path of being a, a unsafe driver. You just start driving. You make mistakes. You know you don't always understand when you can't make a left because of you know the times and you don't. You know, I I did it myself. You you yeah. you. Or you, you're inexperienced. You misjudge. You know how quickly a car is coming towards you and you make an unsafe turn. Exactly. Um, those things happen when you're a new driver, but it's like, there seems to be so little forgiveness, um, mm-hmm. to, uh, for these new drivers. And I, and I, I find it, I mean, it, it just feels how we complained about things that make society feel inhospitable, uh, you know, housing prices in British Columbia and much of the lower mainland for sure. And other parts of BC make BC feel inhospitable. Uh, the fact that you are, you know, can be. Uh, run over by a uh, Mercedes going 120 kilometers an hour on Oak Street makes life feel inhospitable. Uh, the fact that you're going to lose your license uh, for one ticket, you know, when you're a new driver, that there's no forgiveness for you uh, whatsoever, just makes it feel inhospitable. And to me, makes me like not like my society and want to not want to be part of my society. And I think of when I was like young, when I was a teenager and, you know, the, the, the um, um, sort of anger I had in my heart uh, towards hypocrisy and aspects of our society uh, that I found intolerable. And, you know, some things have improved, right? A lot of things have improved. The, the recognition of, of, of uh, people of different sexual orientation and, and, you know, not just tolerance, but acceptance, you know, that's great. Uh, but then at the same time, we find like this short, shortest of short leashes for people who are going to be making mistakes. Um, you know, it just smacks of unfairness. And I, I was with the Supreme Court judge. I'm not with the Court of Appeal on this. No. And the other thing that struck me about their judgment was they talked about how the superintendent is entitled to take into account any part of a person's driving record. And that that's important because the driving record doesn't just reveal what the offenses were that the person was convicted of. It also reveals the points that they got and their age and date of birth in the area of town that they live in. So it opens the door to the superintendent taking into these considerations, um, like how long a person has held a license or how old they are or where they live well, in you... determining the length of the prohibition and whether or not to revoke the prohibition. Well, if you live... And they also appear to separate 
points from the offenses when the two are one in the same because points are, are determined by regulation according to the offense. If you live in the poor area of Williams Lake, they should prohibit you longer because the people in the poor area of Williams Lake tend to get more uh, more tickets for failing to stop at stop signs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we see the Supreme Court of Canada saying, you know, a week ago, don't profile people on the basis and, and, you know, disproportionately police people on the basis of where they live. And then the Court of Appeals saying this week, but, you know, you're allowed to make take that take into account where they live. Take away somebody's license. Yeah. Well, they're less likely to put up a fight, probably, if they're in Williams Lake. So, you know, makes it cheaper and easier for the superintendent because they don't have to deal with the appeal uh, going to BC Supreme Court. Okay, well, that once again does not um, inspire me to feel great about our society. Do you have any um, any other crazy driving story for this week? Or have well, we given yes, up I have our ridiculous driver of the week. Oh, good. Uh, heard this on the radio this morning, and this will be a story that sounds very familiar to you, Paul. Um, a, uh, a driver is not our ridiculous driver is being praised this week. Uh, after stopping uh, an allegedly impaired driver, a man was observed by this this other driver to be stumbling around his vehicle, appeared to be grossly intoxicated, and had a five-year-old child with him. Got into his car and was about to pull away when the quick-thinking driver phoned the police and blocked his car in in the parking stall to prevent him from leaving. All sounds like so many cases. <laughs> well, I see that fairly often, particularly um, reported in the states. And in fact, I saw a uh, somebody who conducted a study that there was a much higher likelihood of it ending up in the news if um, you were a mother um, or a parent who had certainly a parent who had children in the car. So if yeah. you you, if you were charged with a DUI, DWI, OWI, whatever it is, depending on the state you're in, um, that it was likely to become a news story if you had kids in the car. And I don't know if that's because the police go to the media in those circumstances, but, um, you know, people are still innocent until proven guilty. And, yeah. uh, and I don't like it because I think it's um, particularly stigmatizing. And getting back to the issue that we've talked about before, and that is that many people who are in the situation of being charged with impaired driving either have a serious, significant issue that they're dealing with, sometimes a substance abuse issue, uh, and it's usually an anomaly in their life. And uh, to stigmatize them that much more, um, you know, it, uh, we, we recognize that alcoholism is a disease, uh, yet this is something that we are willing to humiliate people uh, about um, for suffering this disease. So it's funny, but I guess I'm, I'm, I'm hurt and angry about that too. Am I too yeah. hurt and angry? Is that, no, is it that's me? basically how I felt, but I thought this was a good ridiculous driver of the week because not every ridiculous driver is deserving of, well, we don't know what this person's reasons were, but we know that not every ridiculous driver is going to be deserving of ridicule. It would be better if they were driving through a drive-thru with a python on their lap. <laughs> and no pants. I will find you one of those. I'm sure there is one in Florida. I promise. <laughs>
Um, all right. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. If you need to get in touch with uh, either me myself or Paul, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. And tune in next week for another episode. 